Hello, fellow rebel capitalists. Hope you're well. I wanted to share some research with you guys, some secrets I've discovered about the Federal Reserve that I think you'll find absolutely fascinating. Now, you guys know from watching my videos that I always say the banking system really isn't constrained by bank reserves. So, in other words, the most people believe the Fed is the sun in the monetary solar system. But the further you you dig, the more research you do, you find that the Fed is definitely not the sun <laughs> in the monetary universe, the commercial banking system. The Fed is like a, at best a planet that's just revolving around the sun. And why is this important? Because all the, the sound money uh, beliefs kind of revolve around, well, we've got to limit the Fed. We've got to limit the Fed. We've got to constrain the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, the Fed, because they're the ones that, quote unquote, print money and do this, you know, M create M2 and therefore consumer price inflation. And, you know, all of these things you guys have heard nonstop. And although at specific times they can assist in the creation of money, uh, maybe around war and definitely 2020 in 2021. Uh, but over time, they, they don't really have a, a huge impact when you look at the data. And um, now a lot of people say, oh, George, that's nonsense. And uh, you don't have any proof of this. And uh, but I actually do. And yesterday I did an interview with a good friend of mine named Robert Breedlove, who has a podcast called What is Money? And it's actually a very difficult question to answer. And we spoke for about two hours. And in doing some research for the podcast, I stumbled upon um, a research paper from 1995 from none other than the Federal Reserve themselves. And this paper is, in my opinion, kind of a smoking gun that shows that the Fed is not <laughs> at all the sun, uh, that at best it's a planet. And let me show you what I'm referring to specifically. And Josh, you're going to really get a kick out of this one. You're, you're going to love this video, I guarantee. So let's go over to this article from the Fed's 17-page report. And this is a summary in 1995 of their open market operations. Now, for those of you who might just remember open market operations as or might associate open market operations exclusively with quantitative easing, it's uh, actually how they tried to micromanage interest rates prior to 2008. So now, as most of you know, they use IOR, so interest on reserves. So if you're JP Morgan and you have a billion dollars worth of reserves at the Fed in what is essentially your checking account, your asset, the Fed's liability, then the Fed is paying you interest on that. And uh, that's pretty clear. Most people understand that. But what most people don't understand is that prior to 2008, the Federal Reserve did not pay interest on bank reserves. They, they, zero was your interest rate. If you're JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, B of A, et cetera. So how did the Federal Reserve uh, micromanage interest rates? Well, if you read a textbook, they'll say, they would go ahead and look at the overnight rate that the banks were lending to each other. And if the overnight rate 
was too high, then they, meaning that, uh, for lack of a better phrase, money was tight. And so the demand for money exceeded the supply. Uh, then what would happen is the Fed would go in and buy some treasuries or T-bills, something like that, just enough to add more liquidity, <laughs> if you want to use that term, uh, to the, the banks so that overnight rate would come down. So they're replacing an asset on uh, the bank's balance sheet with bank reserves or quote unquote cash, bank cash, if you want to look at it that way. And therefore, there's more cash in the system, demand being the same, which would bring the price or the interest rate down for that overnight cash. And then if prices or if interest rate was getting a little bit too low and the Fed wanted to increase the interest rate that the banks were lending to each other overnight, then they would simply just uh, they would just sell some of those treasuries, which would reduce the amount of bank reserves. And if you're reducing the amount of bank, you're reducing the supply. If demand stays the same, then uh, what's going to happen? Oh, I think I said that wrong. Uh, let me back up here. If we're doing the opposite and we want rates to decrease, then we're going to go ahead and uh, increase the supply, which would mean that we are uh, buying uh, treasuries. We're increasing the supply. And then that is going to go ahead and decrease the interest rate. That would be if interest rates are too high. Uh, yeah. If interest rates are too low and they want to increase interest rates, then they would go ahead and uh, buy or sell, excuse me, the treasuries. And that selling of the treasuries would decrease the amount of bank reserves. That would decrease the supply. And then, like I said, if you're decreasing the supply, then interest rates would go up if they're too low to begin with. So um, this is kind of how the process worked. And that's what over uh, open market operations involved prior to 2008. So now when we go in and look at this report from the Fed, and this is basically a summary of what they did in 1995, and who does this the open market operations? It's the same entity that does quantitative easing now, and that would be the trading desk, the Federal Reserve in New York. So the New York branch of the Fed, their trading desk. They're the ones that, that and I'm reading right at the page here, uh, during 1995, the trading desk at the Federal Reserve Bank in New York managed reserve conditions, managed reserve conditions with the objective of maintaining the federal funds rate around the level desired by the Federal Open Market Committee. So again, that process that uh, I tried to explain, <laughs> that I got a little confusing there at the end, but hopefully you guys were able to follow that without a whiteboard. Uh, now, let me continue. The need for permanent reserve additions was much lower than in preceding the preceding few years, mostly reflecting on unanticipated sharp slowing in currency growth and reduction in reserve requirements caused by the spread of sweeps. I'm not going to get into sweeps. It's a whole other uh, technical uh, thing that the banks were doing that, that lowered the amount of reserves they actually needed. Um, but as you go through this, you start to see that, wait a minute here, what they're doing is they are responding 
to the amount of money the banks are creating through their lending. So most of us believe, or you know, most people out there that even understand this to a, a, a small degree, believe that the Fed creates a certain amount of bank reserves. And then based on a reserve requirement, then the banks can go ahead and create loans on top or of those reserves. So the reserves are 10 bucks. So then with a 10% reserve requirement, the banks can go ahead and create, uh, let's say, uh, 90 or $9. We start with uh, $1. Uh, we start with $10 and they can uh, create $90 of loans. Therefore, the total deposits in the system would be 100 and at a 10% reserve requirement, then uh, that would match up with the $10 of reserves, bank reserves they have at the Fed. Most people believe, and then if the Fed wants to um, increase the amount of money the banks can lend, then they just go ahead and increase their balance sheet. So they increase the amount of reserves and the banks can go ahead and lend more. So th this would be like this fixed relationship between the banks, between the Federal Reserve balance sheet and the bank's balance sheet, which is why one of the reasons why you hear Austrians say, you know, the true definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. And they look right at the Fed's balance sheet uh, because some, not all, but some believe that there is this fixed relationship between base money and broad money. And uh, what you start to notice is like, wait a minute here, how are they managing this? Because they never say that uh, the banks are constrained as far as the bank reserves. What they insinuate throughout this 17-page paper, and to a great degree, and I won't read the whole paper, but they start to insinuate that most people have it in reverse order. So instead of the bank reserves determining how much bank lending there is, it's actually bank lending that determines how much bank reserves there are. It's the opposite, right? So no bank ever has said, oh my gosh, you'd be a great loan candidate, but unfortunately we can't give you a loan because we don't have any bank reserves. <laughs> All right, Wells Fargo is never going to tell you that. So why? Well, because. What happens is even if they're at their max as far, let's just say that the uh, reserve requirements were a restraint, which I don't think they are, but I don't want to go off on a, uh, another tangent here. But let's just assume for a moment that uh, they were a restraint. Then a bank, let's just assume, is at their maximum. So any additional loan is going to take them over their reserve requirement. So what they do is they go ahead and issue the loan. And then if it takes them over the reserve requirement, then the New York Fed's trading desk sees that. And of course, the trading desk is only worried about an aggregate total. They're most likely not looking at it a bank to bank because they don't care about bank to bank. They only care about the aggregate because if Wells Fargo did that loan and they didn't have the reserves, what would they do? They just simply borrow the reserves from another bank to go overnight to go ahead and meet their requirement. So again, New York trading desk worried about the aggregate total. So if an aggregate, they see that there's uh, they're a little low on reserves, they just go ahead and add some more. So the banking system creates all the loans and then the Federal Reserve creates enough bank reserves to back up their lending or to back up the commercial bank's liabilities, the deposits that that lending creates.
Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. For further clarification, let's go over to the Bank of England. And this is for those of you who have watched my videos for quite some, you know, since the beginning, let's say since 2019, you have seen me reference this report, what, hundreds of times, <laughs> maybe. And I remember when I first read this report, it took me so long to get my head around this. And I studied it just for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I, I just, I couldn't figure out how they were doing what they said they were doing. But now, of course, when I go back and, and look at it, it just, it's, it seems obvious and it, it makes a lot of sense now. But one point I want to highlight, and this is in the introduction, and any of you can just Google this. This is uh, called Money Creation in the Modern Economy. And this was, again, a report from the Bank of England in 2014. But in the introduction, they say that there's two misconceptions about money creation. Number one, uh, they talk about the banks being an intermediary where they're just taking existing money and lending it out at, uh, you know, with a multiplier. And when they say, no, it's actually the banks are creating all the deposits. It's not the deposits allowing the banks to lend. And then the other thing they point out, let's see here, right here, let me read it to you. Another common misconception is that the central bank determines the quantity of loans and deposits in the economy by controlling the quantity of central bank money the so-called money multiplier approach. In that view, central banks implement monetary policy by choosing a quantity of reserves. And because there is assumed to be a consistent ratio of broad money to base money, these reserves are then multiplied up to a much greater change in bank loans and deposits. For the theory to hold, the amount of reserves must be binding must be a binding constraint on lending and central bank must directly determine the amount of reserves. Let me read that last sentence because it's very important. For the theory to hold, the amount of reserves must be a binding constraint on lending and the central bank must directly determine the amount of reserves. Moving on. While the money multiplier theory can be a useful way of introducing money and banking in economic textbooks, it is not an accurate description <laughs> of how money is created in reality. Rather than controlling the quantity of reserves, central banks today typically implement monetary policy by setting the price of reserves. Okay, interest rates. So let me go on here. In reality, neither are reserves a binding constraint on lending nor 
does the central bank fix the amount of reserves that are available? As with the relationship between deposits and loans, the relationship between reserves and loans typically operates in reverse to that described in economic textbooks or in reverse to what 99.9999999% of people believe. Banks first decide how much to lend, depending on what? Profitability. How many times, and now I'm going off script here, but how many times have you guys heard me say, the only thing that constrains banks or banks' balance sheets or the amount of money they create or the amount of loans they do is counterparty risk. You guys have probably heard me say that thousands of times. The only thing that constrains banks is counterparty risk. It's not the Fed. It's not the Fed. And man, I get a lot of flack on Twitter as an example for saying these things. But this is why I say it because it's the truth. It's the, it's just the truth. It's just people have never heard it. And they've always seen it from the opposite angle. And because it's the foundation for a lot of the principles of sound money, they just can't get their head around the fact that it's actually the opposite, that bank reserves have nothing to do with constraining banks at all, because the bank reserves are created based on how much lending the banks are doing. So if there's only 10 reserves and the banks do enough loans to require another 10 reserves, they go ahead and do the loans. And then the New York Fed trading desk sees, ah, we need another 10 bank reserves. All right, Joey, go ahead and buy 10 bank reserves worth of treasuries, mortgage-backed securities. All right, done. And as you guys know now, they've got so many reserves in the system that it doesn't even matter. I mean, they're just the banks are flushed with reserves. So this is just kind of a moot issue. But it is, uh, I think, very important to understand how this component of the plumbing works because it's a total game changer. Once This is a paradigm shift because once you start to get your head around the fact that the, the, the banks are the sun in the monetary universe and there's nothing that constrains them, nothing, zero, not reserve requirements, not bank reserves, not zero, that it, it, it helps you understand that our main problem here uh, if you want to look at the growth of M2 money supply, if that's a problem, our, our, our main issue is not the Fed. It's not the Fed. So when, you know, people say that, uh, you know, the, the Fed is printing money, the Fed's going to, and a lot of people that I, I've got a lot of respect for in this space, you know, the Fed's printing money, the Fed's going to print money, the Fed's going to print money. Not really. <laughs> not really. Now, there are times when this is true. I want to be very clear. So if you look at the 2021 or 2020, 2021, it is very true that the 25% spike in M2, the Fed definitely contributed to that. Why? Because a lot of the quantitative easing they did was buying treasuries via the primary dealers from non-bank entities in the real economy. Now, if they would have bought those treasuries from the, from the banking entities, probably wouldn't have done very much at all. I'm talking about M2. You go back to World War II, probably the same thing. You go back to World War I, Probably the same thing. But if you look at the amount of, of government spending in total, in total, across the last, let's say, 100 years, there, there's no way uh, that you can come to the conclusion 
that the Fed really impacted that to a significant degree. And also, if you look at the total amount of M2 that is created by the banking system, there, there's no way that you could come to the conclusion, if you know how the plumbing works, that the Fed controls money or that the Fed controls the, the amount of currency units, the amount of dollars. The Fed doesn't control that. The Fed is just simply at the mercy of the commercial banking system. And then when the commercial banking system goes runs amok, then it is true. The Fed can come in and bail them out, which is one of the desirable components of quote unquote sound money that it would, uh, I believe, prevent the a lot of the bailouts, which I, I think is the, the real problem that with uh, micromanaging the uh, price of money, um, you know, whether it's too high, too low, that's a completely separate argument. But the main point I'm trying to make here, and I think it's crystal clear when you look at this Fed report and then you back that up with what the Bank of England is saying, is that there, there is nothing that constrains the banking system. And I'm not even talking about the fact that they can settle transactions on their own balance sheet. That's a completely separate video, completely separate topic. But even if they're not settling on their own balance sheet, which I think a lot of them are, uh, even if it is reserves, the, the Bank of England and back, even back in 95, the Federal Reserve was admitting that, hey, we, we don't, even if we're micromanaging rates, if the rates go too high because bank lending has grown too much, then we're just going to go in there and bring that rate back down to where we want it to be by doing what? Creating enough reserves to uh, uh, fulfill demand from the banking system, but they're the ones that are driving the car. We're just sitting in the back seat. And this paragraph and this report from the Bank of England says this explicitly. I mean, explicitly, you can't be more explicit than right here. Let's read this again. As with the relationship between deposits and loans, the relationship between reserves and loans typically operate in the reverse way. Banks first decide how much to lend, depending on profitability. That's it, profitability or the way I say it is counterparty risk. Then after the banks decide to lend based on profitability, in the next sentence, they say it is these lending decisions that determine how many bank deposits are created by the banking system and the amount of deposits in turn influence how much central bank money or bank reserves those banks want to hold and therefore how many of those bank reserves the central bank actually creates. So this was the uh, the secret, if you will, that, um, you know, I, I started to think about a long time ago, and I've tried to articulate this in a variety of different ways. And on these videos, it's a lot easier. And especially on whiteboards, it's, a, it's way easier. On Twitter, it's very, very difficult. Um, you know, 140 characters, it's almost impossible to uh, try to walk people through and, and try to help them reduce their learning curve. Um, uh, that, that's almost impossible on Twitter. And, uh, you know, I just wish I had someone back in 2019, 2020, when I was studying this stuff to help me reduce that learning curve. Because like I said earlier, I'm, I can't even tell you how many hours I spent just, just beating my head against the wall, um, trying to figure out this, this bank of England report. Um, but now that I've done so much 
research on this now that it's it's very it's crystal clear then i just want to try to help other people so they don't have to bang their head against a wall like i did to try to figure this stuff out because um, as you guys can tell uh, this is a huge paradigm shift that every investor needs to understand if the fed is truly not the center of the monetary universe like everyone thinks that that's if you understand that and if you understand how that plumbing works that is a massive edge, a huge edge that you have uh, in the future in terms of setting up your portfolio and making investment decisions. So that's the main reason I'm, I'm trying to go over this along with, um, you know, I don't want to go off another tangent. We'll save it for another video or you can watch my interview with Robert Breedlove and he and I discussed this on his podcast, but it's also shows you that sound money in and of itself will not fix our problems. Uh, that even if you constrain the Fed, it's like we said, it's, it's really not about the Fed. Uh, so sound money in and of itself won't reduce the size of government. People think those things are synonymous. And when you get into weeds, you discover they're, they're most likely not. And so our greatest tool that we have as rebel capitalists and uh, people that want to stand up for freedom, liberty, and free market capitalism is simply persuading our friend and family member Freds in society that small government and low taxes is, is the path to prosperity, not just for the rich, but more so for the poor and middle class. That's what's really going to move the needle. Sound money itself or constraining the Fed, uh, you know, keeping the Fed from quote unquote money printing is, is in my opinion, not going to do much because at the end of the day, the Fed is just simply revolving or playing backseat to the commercial banking system that can create as many currency units as they see fit. Their only constraint is not bank reserves. It's not the Federal Reserve. I would argue it's not even regulation. It's just simply counterparty risk. And then when you combine that, that the bank's infinite ability to print money, and then you combine that with government, that's when you get big big problems right but if you eliminate the government component of it uh and then even if you had fiat currency if you eliminate the government component of it it would still be far superior to what we have today um just going back to you know the example i was using the 1800s when we had free banking uh, i i don't know that uh, gold was really a constraint on m2 maybe it was but maybe it wasn't i don't know uh but we had times when you know 400 percent M2 money supply growth, but yet we had 45% deflation. I'm talking about from 1870 to 1900. So uh, again, the, the key there is to reduce the size of government. That's where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. No pun intended. <laughs> All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market, capitalism, and we'll see you on the next video.